We are in business. Okay, great. Go ahead. Hi. I'm Adam Gopnik. I've been a staff writer at The New Yorker for 35 years. I was the art critic of The New Yorker for uh, almost uh, nine years, but I still write often about art for the magazine. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I've, I've really wanted to have a long conversation with you about art for a while. I was reading your book um, at the Stranger's Gate. Yes. And what I was really moved by or found myself relating to really powerfully was when you talked about being a docent at MoMA and the the way the storytelling of art becomes the you know when i when i read your pieces in the new yorker something that i'm really struck by and something that i feel like has really informed the way that i write about art is that it feels like a barrier has been taken away between art and life and life and art and that the merging of the two and kind of finding the beauty in life and also being able to talk about art in a really accessible way is a really like that's how you get people that's how you can kind of tell that story to people and so i would just really love to let that unfurl a little bit talk to you first of all i'd love to talk about your background in art and your academic background in art and why you left it <laughs> and have that be the starting point for the conversation sure. well first of all i'm i'm all authors are ecstatically happy when anybody reads them with any kind of sympathy or insight. And I'm so genuinely overjoyed that you enjoyed that and did not under enjoy that chapter because the one you're referencing about um, getting started in New York by giving these little gallery lectures at the Museum of Modern Art was my favorite chapter in that book because for two reasons. One, because it had my favorite character, Maxie Shacknow, who was an absolutely <laughs> real person who, guy who was a Sunday painter worked in the garment industry and was had set himself the task of painting the missing Van Gogh. Do we, can we call him Van Gogh, not Van Gogh? Yes, but um, uh, the missing Vincent uh, mm -hmm. of uh, the portrait of Theo that Vincent had never actually painted himself. And it was such a beautiful quixotic uh, quest. And then the punchline of it all was is that I discovered years later that Maxie had had a lot of money and he had opened his own museum, the Shacknell Museum <laughs> in Florida in retirement. Mm -hmm. uh, so I love doing that. And in part because that time for me was a moment of exposure to obviously the necessity to communicate, to reach people with your, not with so much with information about the pictures, which they could get from a wall label, but with your enthusiasm, your passion for the yeah. pictures. And also a, a reminder that people, uh, that people bring themselves to the pictures complete. Yeah. And that uh, there's no obsession so strange, no fixation so odd that you won't bring it to a work of art. And in a very moving way that there was, and I wonder if there is still, a community of art lovers who saw the Museum of Modern Art, this is in 1980, 1981, as very much their own, not exactly mm -hmm. not as a province of some elite outsiders, but because of the nature of that museum, its physical position in the center of Manhattan, its 
psychological place as having been a, a New York landmark for so long. It belonged to the people who visited it very much. It wasn't a fashionable museum in, in, in the sense of having anything very new. Well, it did, but <laughs> at that point, less so. But it was a popular museum. And I mm -hmm. think becoming aware of that was powerful. I had a horribly snobbish, and uh, it was hardly insider, but certainly um, select uh, introduction to the arts. My parents were both um, crazy about modern art. My mom was a painter of some talents, but my mom was one of those people who had countless talents, and she chose to follow her scientific uh, self rather than her artistic self and professionally. But she, my earliest memories all involved my mother painting in a kind of de Kooning like style mm -hmm. in the tiny public housing project where, where, where my first memories are. And my parents in their love for uh, modernism and avant-gardism, which they curiously, but not atypically for their generation, I think, identified with the ascendant bourgeoisie. You know, I, the idea of avant the avant-garde was meant to deflate or, or demolish the ascendant bourgeoisie, but mm -hmm. generation after generation, as they ascended, the bourgeoisie took it to their bosoms mm -hmm. and made it their own. My parents, though, highbrows, not middles, were no exception. They began going into New York City from Philadelphia, where I spent the first 12 years of my life. I pass as a Philadelphian when I choose to, and then as a <laughs> Canadian when it's more beneficial to my interests. Um, and they would go to New York almost every Saturday. That's probably a screen memory. You know, that is anything in our childhoods we say. And every Saturday we would go to New York. It was probably five times a year. In any case, they would go to New York. They'd drive to New York from Philadelphia in their little blue Volkswagen, another generational beacon and marker. Mm -hmm. And they would go up and down what then 57th Street and Madison Avenue, which is where art was, looking at objects. This is 1963, 64, 65. And they began collecting. Actually, mm -hmm. they in those days, you know, they would collect multiples at the old multiples gallery, which eventually became the Marion Goodman Gallery. And then they actually collected um, originals that are uh, worth some money now, though they would, you know, in those days, they, they had a taste for minimalism and particularly California minimalism. They bought a, a work by uh, James McCracken. I don't that name probably won't mean much to our listeners, but he was a very significant uh California minimalist who sort of took the form language of Donald Judd and took it to an auto shop part and gave it a California uh, custom car finish, literally. I, you know, they were big uh, broken rectangles uh, that had, uh, you know, bright yellow and red, that kind of beautifully lacquered finish of a custom car. Larry Bell is another artist of that kind. So they bought that stuff. In those days, you could buy it for 600, 700 bucks, which was a lot of money for college professors, but was still on a layaway basis, I guess, um, mm -hmm. affordable. So that was very much my first exposure to art was the thrill, the excitement of uh, going to New York to look at it, mm -hmm. uh, going up and down uh, the streets, being in a, in a world that was dominated by, and I remember even at that early age, and, you know, precocity is so much a family sin that you either have to tolerate it or... <laughs> assassinate the entire family and oh, many God. people many people would would vote for the second <laughs> um it was so much a uh, uh i remember having the sense of um the development the time passing so you would go in 
1963, and there would be Andy Warhols, and everyone would be talking about Andy Warhol. And a year later, Andy Warhol would have hived off into a new moment, and Klaus Oldenburg would be around. And I was learning them as names and as styles, as looks. But the sense that art was made by alteration, by change, the change was a positive principle, was mm -hmm. very uh, deeply instilled in me. And then at the same time, we would go to the, um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is a first class museum, as, mm -hmm. as you know. I don't know, you know, if you had to compare Boston and Philadelphia, they're, they're, Boston's got a deeper collection, but Philadelphia has great stuff in it. And it was there that I first had the experience, you know, if, if, if going up and down Madison Avenue and West 57th Street gave me the, the thrill, the frisson, the excitement of the avant-garde um, filtered through my parents' preoccupations and stuffed into the trunk, so to speak, of their blue Volkswagen. The Philadelphia Museum was the first place where I got the sense of the, what to call it, the mysterious enchantment that art creates. And I remember things, I think it was the Johnson collection had, had very particular things that would be terrifying. They had Rubens Prometheus being devoured by a vulture, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great and terrifying picture and scares me to death when I think about it to this day. They had Dali's uh, soft watches, whatever that's called, the persistence of time, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the one of the few really first rate Dalis, and that haunts me to this day. They had um, uh, above all uh, Miro's uh, dog barking at the moon, which is one of the enchanted pictures of modern art. And each one of these pictures, I guess the point is tomorrow, cast a spell, which I remember as mm -hmm. as intensely as a as a perfume. Mm -hmm. uh, Kenneth Clark, the great Estee, said someplace that uh, a work of art. Cast, has the same effect as when the moment when you open an orange, you know, and the peel comes <laughs> off in the first spray. And that's what it was like. And that all of our labors as historians and critics, explicators and teachers is to, to preserve that first uh, aroma. And I think anybody who has any sensitivity to works of art at all knows that moment, knows mm -hmm. that spell when it's cast. And to come back after this extremely laborious and tedious um, digression to your original question about how I go about writing about art. I think that that becomes your, um, your touchstone. You either know that the thing has cast this spell or it hasn't, and there's no faking it. It's there or it isn't there. I don't mean it to be mystifying, I, but I think it's authentically mystifying and that our job as critics, explicators, is to try and understand something of the way that works on our souls, as opposed to treating works of art like uh, uh, pieces in some game of metaphysical or philosophical chess. So you've just touched on so many points that I want to get back to. Um, I actually want to start first with something a little bit more, um, I guess, logistical, but of course it'll become more <laughs> soulful from there because you're talking so much about modern art, but when you were in graduate school, you actually focused on Byzantine and, and Renaissance art, right? Renaissance art. Yeah. Byz so, I studied Byzantine, but I was focused on Renaissance. I did my MA thesis on Renaissance. Yeah. So what pulled you, you know, it's like every art historian is pulled into a different period and they just know <laughs> that that's where they want to go. What, what about Renaissance art pulled you in? Oh, um, great. That's a great question. I had been in Italy again with my family when I was older and we were, they were on sabbatical at that point, 1973, 74. And like, you know, every poor pitiful 
screwed up SD <laughs> adolescent, I had fallen in love with, you know, the, the, the pictures one saw there, you know, with uh, the Quattrocento. I have the tastes of a mediocre SD to the 1870s. I love uh, Filippo Lippi and Botticelli and um, the, Fra Filippo Lippi, we should call him, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Perugino, uh, all of those painters who were, you know, as I say, you know, for the Walter Pater generation were the, were the, were the touchstones. And I love that work. And, it, uh, and Giotto, above all, went to the Arena Chapel in, uh, in Padua. And that was and remains still probably the strongest uh, reservoir of whatever that perfume is. And I think also as well, I, you know, in a weird backwards way, you know, most people who care about art are trained in the first instance to love uh, narrative painting and descriptive drawing. Mm -hmm. I was trained in the first instance by my parents, peculiarly avant-garde taste, to value abstract form and uh, pure color. So having to learn to look at pictures for narrative was for me as disconcerting as learning to not look at pictures for narrative had been to some, you know, the first generation of modernist. Yeah, that's and, an interesting direction. To yeah. Go and I, and I, I still, you know, um, I don't struggle with it, but I'm conscious of it. So uh, for all those reasons, I love the Italian Renaissance. I suppose like everybody, there's something seductive as well about the, I'm too old now to put on airs about separating uh, human motives from disinterested aesthetic motives because they're all part of one brew. There was something, there was a, I, for lack of a better word, glamour attached to Italian Renaissance studies. And also let me add, giving myself a little more credit for gravity than that suggests. Almost all of the groundbreaking and uh, foundational intellectual work in art history had been done on the battlefield of Italian Renaissance art. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. where Berenson fought the battles of connoisseurship and then Warburg yeah. of, uh, of iconology and Panofsky, then the battles of iconography and so on. So, so if you were intellectually ambitious in a funny way, that's where the fighting had been. Mm -hmm. By the time I was actually fighting, um, a lot of that energy had gone into uh, modern art. But at that particular period, most writing about modern art, it was, I mean, Meyer Shapiro and, and, uh, and, and other exceptions, but on the whole modern art was where you had polemics and critics and Italian Renaissance art was where you had intellectuals and, uh, uh, and historians. Hmm. In my own time in graduate school, that was a, a change. You had someone like Leo Steinberg who began as a, I don't know if these names will mean anything to anyone, but Leo Steinberg began as a, an Italian Renaissance mm -hmm. scholar Mm -hmm. uh, then shifted his attentions to Picasso and the origins of Cubism yeah, yeah, and yeah. so on. And that, so by the time I graduated, most of the intellectual energy was in the battlefield of modernism as well, with a lot of political agendas as well. But uh, it was the combination of the disinterested aesthetic appeal of Italian Renaissance art and the self-interested opportunism of a young intellectual <laughs> who wanted to be in the, in the center of things. Well, and, and you say intellectual, I mean, you're talking about, about a very academic way of looking at the different fields of study within art history. And um, I, I want to ask you about that, but I also, I'm just curious in the way you put it. I mean, did you get the same kind of like fragrance of the orange peel spray from Renaissance art that you had gotten from modern art? Oh yeah, I still, I still do more powerfully yeah. than anywhere else. I mentioned 
seeing the Giotto Arena Chapel for the yeah, first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, if I have to list my ten favorite pictures, and I would, if you, if you, yeah. <laughs> we'll save uh, that for the end. Yeah, so, <laughs> you, you, half of them would be pictures in Venice or Florence that have yeah. that that have that kind of power. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that I struggle with a lot, actually, is the academicism of art history and that incredible erratic experience of standing in front of an object and and feeling really connected to it. And um, something that you actually, you mentioned in the, in your book is that how you had enjoyed the, the Fragonards and, but after working in the Frick reference library, they, they kind of lost their airiness, their featheriness, and they became really stodgy. Um, And I relate to that entirely. I, I worked for a time. I interned at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Uh, I, I was in their provenance department. I and, remember, right? You know, it, it it's you know nothing against, nothing against provenance, which is a very necessary piece of art historical work, but it's not what I would choose to stay connected to the aura mm. of the work. Um, and I I'm curious, kind of, on your take about about balance losing that magic as you get deeper into the more academic or administrative piece. Um, and if that is why you didn't stay in the academic world. Yeah, you know, I, I remember very well from my first year at, at the Institute of Fine Arts, where I was doing my, should have been doing my PhD, was doing my <laughs> graduate work. I, uh, I said to someone, some, you know, star student at the Institute, uh, some version, probably even more pretentious than the one I just offered of my, the, you know, of the charge that pictures provided and the sense, which is still to my mind astounding, though, how much of the whole spirit of an age and a time can be summed up in a single picture. You know, I love Proust. I just did a long piece about Proust, mm-hmm. but you get all of Proust in a single Whistler, you know, it just it's <laughs> it's compressed. And that's still to me one of the astounding things about the history of art. I was decanting these. Yeah. high-minded ascetic thoughts to uh, a fellow student. And he turned to me very sincerely. He said, he said, oh, he said, it sounds like you're not really interested in art history. You're interested in art appreciation, <laughs> which was like the most demeaning. Knife and, in the heart. Yes. Also, if I may add an extremely gendered yeah. comment, as we would say now, because yeah. there's a lot of that, that 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 goes on. And you could you could even say there's a whole kind of drama in the history of art history about reasserting its masculine nature against the threat that it would be merely a feminine act of table setting and Mm -hmm. decor appreciated so on but putting that aside yeah i believe in art appreciation yes i was completely out of place in art history and i didn't really belong there i could taken it up as a you know i'd done it in as an undergraduate uh again with the usual mix of high-minded and and low, low located <laughs> motives uh, because I had chased an extremely pretty girl into the art history classroom and I decided not to be a psychology major. Um, and that's true. I, am, I, I can say that without lecturers because I married her and we've been married now for 40 years, <laughs> but that was my essential motive. And that, and it was fun to look at, look at slides of pictures rather than slides under microscopes. But uh, I really had, then gotten a, a fellowship to come to New York to study. And I wanted to come to New York to write. I didn't want to be an art historian, mm-hmm. but it gave me a passport, so to speak, into New York that I, that uh, that we needed. And then 
I had the great good or ill fortune to meet a great teacher. Um, You're asking me a moment ago about why I switched from Renaissance to modern. I had a high-minded reason, but the actual practical reason was that um, Kirk Varnado was a professor of modern art at the Institute of Fine Arts. And um, Kirk was without exception. um, He, some of your listeners may know he died tragically early in 2003, but Mm -hmm. Kirk was without exception, the most inspiring teacher not only I ever encountered, but I think anyone has ever encountered, um, all of his students would agree about that. And he was um, uh, charismatic is a word cheapened by overuse, but he was genuinely charismatic in the original almost religious sense of the term that you wanted to follow him anywhere he was going because of who he was as much as because of what he studied or said. And I had, as I said, the great good fortune to meet him in my first term and say to myself, this is a man worth impressing. This is a guy worth following. And um, I did for the next uh, uh, five years, uh, writing all the time, but it took me a while to break that spell to go back to do what I was really intending to do and what in a sense I was meant to do, which was not to do academic art history, but to to write, just simply Mm -hmm. to write. But we had such a rich and fraternal and uh, life-changing time studying together, working together, writing together, that uh, uh, even though it was in a certain sense a a misplacement of my ego, it was certainly the place where I found my, or let me rephrase that. It was was a misplacement of my talent, but it was exactly the place where I learned how to discipline my ego. Mm. Um, Kirk was uh, a great teacher and he, um, he taught me to work. Everybody I think needs that one mentor who teaches you work habits, you know, for most Mm-hmm. A lot of people, it's a great coach, great uh, uh, athletic coach. Kirk loved football and he had been a football coach for a while. And he had that kind of effect on um, on all of his students, certainly on me, that um, I was lazy before I met him. I was, I was good. I was sort of precocious, but I was lazy. I didn't have good work habits. And Kirk taught me work habits, which have not left me to this day. And that was the transformational experience of my life. You talk about... The, the difference, this is something I guess that it's, it's like I struggle to ask because it's something that I struggle with so much myself because I, I also removed myself from the academic art history world mm-hmm. because I wanted to write without feeling like I was writing for a very specific kind of audience in a very specific kind of way. You know, it's like mm-hmm. art historians don't really, and you know, I don't want to make generalizations because I also think that the, the field has changed a lot, even in the, the 10, 15 years since I've been outside of the academic world. But it doesn't feel like art historians can really write about the charge. No, you, it's, <laughs> you, you know, write, it's, yeah, go ahead. I think one of the things that happens is that most, I, I, I'll say charitably, there are, there's a, a stunning number of people who do go into art history with what I call a stamp collector sensibility. And they want to get the stamps in the right order in their, in their notebook. And they're largely indifferent to art as we understand it. That's a harsh thing to say, but it happens to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my broader experience, most people who go into art history go into it out of a passion, which then gets, what's the polite way to put this, <clears throat> sublimated into archival research, Mm -hmm. iconographic studies, social history. And then they have to wait for a certain time in their life. And then they suddenly, they come out of the closet, so to speak, and they become 
actual human beings and not art historians. Alexander Nemirov, I uh, just reviewed a book of his on um, Helen Frankenthaler, like yes. Helen Frankenthaler. Yeah. And the whole introduction is spent apologizing to Helen Frankenthaler for having ignored her all this time <laughs> because he was such a, he had such a poker up his ass that he couldn't emote and relate properly to her mm. very sensual art and so on. And he writes this whole book uh, very touchingly about where he calls her Helen and tries to compensate for his own failures. And I think that that's, uh, uh, that's not unknown uh, mm-hmm. among our, uh, among art historians, but, you know, look, the professionalization of emotion is the death of an emotion and whatever the emotion is, you're going to professionalize and people come around then to trying to return to the amateur in both sense, the loving emotion that led them to a field, usually too late in life to make it any better. Yeah. You know, but they, but they, but they, they do. And that's not just true about, about our historians. I think it's, it's often true about academics of any kind. Uh, Well, and, and, you know, and school helps that, you know, it, it acts like it's not kind of assisting in that process, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm thinking just as you're, you're talking all the people that I know that have been through music school who go in because it's something that they do have such a passion for and they just get the shit kicked out of them emotionally and they have to then overcome the trauma of having been through music school to come back to the music. I want to kind of pick up the thread of of the amateur experience of an artwork right? as in many ways being the most authentic. And yet, you know, I also... I was a a docent, I was an an adjunct lecturer at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston for about 10 years. And I would also, you know, stand in a room, stand in front of a painting. I I would make the joke at the beginning, you know, I'm going to talk no matter what. So feel free to, you know, come and go, but I hope you'll stay. And I would have to find a really kind of hooky way to get people in. Um, you know, and in that way, it's a lot like a, a podcast, like they, they kind of have to listen and decide mm. early on if there's a narrative there that they want to be hooked into, as opposed to what a lot of docents do, unfortunately, is just kind of go down their, their list of bullet points without really become a walking wall label. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I know you talk about, you know, you tell people not to read the labels. It's like, you know, put, put away. <laughs> put away Wikipedia and actually listen to a crafted narrative about why this painting will matter to you. But at the same time, I mean, so that's, that's the, the storytelling as comes from us and we'll come back to that. But I want to talk about, you know, the way that I was trained to teach art history has a way of also kind of taking people's authentic experiences and saying, well, here's about, here's about how this touched you. That's right. And here's how it's not right. And here's, we're going to, you know, we're going to push it into the direction that's right. And the fact that both people who come into a museum, just because they like the, the feel of being there, or they, you know, that there's, because museums can feel really intimidating, but they can also feel really good, even if you don't know anything about them. They have that kind of that rare error that can be really lovely. But then also professionals, you know, real, like professors also need to kind of come back to a more authentic love of it eventually. They need to kind of push out all of, the, all of that kind of intellectualism. 
And I found myself in the middle, personally. I really wanted to think with the audience in mind, but I also knew that there was something that I, like I wanted to help shape the experience that they were having. But it meant starting with that real experience. I, I would just love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I totally recognize what you're saying. At, at the risk of being fatuous, I, I do think that the two things properly done go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I met to be specific, right, over that great sergeant, the Boyd Daughters. And I still have the book, Erica Hirschler's um, Sergeant's Daughters. And I had read it, and it's a terrific little book. Um, uh, there should be more books like it, that is to say, devoted to kind of the, the evolutionary etymology of one picture in all mm -hmm. of its complexity, because so often we do uh, social history and then we just use a picture as complicated as this one as an illustration of uh, one of some phenomenon where feminism is the obvious one. Anyway, the point I was going to make is, is that this picture is as intricate as a novella by Henry James, the relationships between the three girls, their placement in this strange Paris apartment, mm -hmm. their adjacency to this enormous Chinese vase, this Ming vase, all of it tells you something that there's a dialogue of innocence and darkness that's taking place in this picture that's as resonant as the turn of the screw. Uh, and then one discovers in reading Erica Hirschler's wonderful book, fascinating detail about that these four gorgeous young girls all remained unmarried. Now, it's not a, let me quickly pull out my feminist credentials and say, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it is a startling fact yeah. about uh, wealthy young women of this period that mm -hmm. none of them ever married. And the reasons for that are complicated. Mm -hmm. My very fatuous point, not worth elaborating at this length, is that there was nothing contradictory about those two experiences of the picture. It's the reason we go to museums is to look at a picture of that quality and mystery and allure. And we go back to it again and again, as we go back to the Rembrandt self-portrait in the Frick and or the piano lesson, the Matisse at, at MoMA. It, what it means is genuinely open-ended. Another fatuous cliche, we find new meanings and great works of art every time we approach them. But that's true, we do. And they're not just projections of ourselves, they're also a deeper understanding of the language of the picture and of the, of the meaning of the picture. And yet at the same time, uh, understanding something specific in particular about its etymology, its evolution is hugely valuable. I, you know, I love the piano lesson in, uh, in MoMA. Um, but my understanding of it is deepened when I read A Life of uh, Pierre Matisse and know just how oddly arid in that austere French way his childhood was mm -hmm. and the way that the form of the metronome is implanted on his forehead, that that's not merely a, a formal gesture within a cubist syntax, but is about a boy being regimented within an inch of his life. When I compare that picture, which I only was able to do recently because I'd never seen it, to the, uh, the companion Matisse piano lesson in the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, and you realize how that that's a completely festive kind of faux naive picture is against this extremely internal uh, cubist derived one. Uh, my understanding of the picture deepens. My pleasure in the picture deepens. Yeah. And my pleasure, the spell cast, the enchantment of the sergeant is only deepened by my having read Erica Hirschler and understanding something more about the occasion that produced it, 
the nature of Sargent's commission, um, the background of the picture and the immediate experience of the picture need not be contradictory or self-canceling. They can be, when it's done right, they can be incredibly, not just reciprocal, but they can be uh, mutually illuminating mm. and deepen your understanding, not of something apart from the picture, but of exactly that first emotion that the picture gave you. Kirk Varnado, who's the most inspired lecture I ever heard, gave his last lecture he ever gave actually was about uh, the Van Gogh portrait of Roulin, which mm. he had actually bought for the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, wow. um, and one of the things he pointed out was that the two things uh, that I'll never forget. One is that the facial type of Roulin was obviously made by Vincent to recall the facial type of the bust of Socrates, which is one of the standard mm -hmm. um, facial types of uh, classical antiquity. And the, the equation is he's ugly. He looks like a Selenus. He looks like the misshapen goat god but he's the wisest man who ever lived. And the contradiction of ugliness and wisdom is something you're meant to internalize. It was very much part of, of Vincent's deliberate take on the postman. And the fact that the postman is wearing his postal uniform, which gives a slight comic edge to the picture always, because he's so touchingly proud of being a postman, is tied into the uh, the Boulangist movement of that very year, you know, that. Uh, uh, Boulanger, as Kirk explained, was a, a military man, a French military man who led a kind of populist revolt, which nearly took over the French government. And he's wearing the uniform because he's so proud. He's kind of a little boulangiste and he's proud to be in uniform. Those are art historical facts. Those are archival facts that far from leading you away from your initial your first response to the picture, deepen it. Because one of the reasons why I think we love that picture is because we sense in Roulin and the postman a kind of absurdly overweening pride yeah. in himself at the same yeah. time that we recognize he's a funny looking postman. He's, yeah. he's well, I remember reading that um, that his uniform uh, referenced the fact that he actually wasn't a mail carrier. He was a mail sorter. Exactly and right. Those are two very different, you know, and, and you know, that more contemporary audiences would have picked up on that. But that we have to... <laughs> and even if you hadn't picked up on it, it's part of the 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 harmonic texture. It's one of the yeah. chords in the picture that you feel even if you don't. But that's exactly right. And I remember coming back to our our first subject, Maxi Shacknow, my friend, the uh, the Van Gogh imitator, the Van Gogh improver, <laughs> was disgusted by that picture because he said, look, he painted, Vincent painted the goddamn postman and he never painted his own brother. But yeah. why Vincent chose to paint the postman is something that really matters. Yeah. So I think when it's you're doing it right, there's a, a hybridization, a cross-fertilization of scholarship and sensibility, which is the, you know, the high uh post we try to get to if i had to choose between sensibility and scholarship i would take sensibility and god knows there's an enormous amount of scholarship which is the overt and self-declared enemy of sensibility but it, it it can be done yeah yeah i also you know this is something that of course anybody who was in school for for art history or kind of abandoned ship like i did um, in order to actually get back to the kind of writing that I, you know, to get that charge back, right. I had to leave that world. And I end up talking to people in galleries, recognizing that, you know, they, and, and you, you write about this too, that people love the background stories. They love hearing about something that is going to make the work more relatable 
than the velvet rope and the ornate frame and the quiet of the museum. You know, that kind of takes away the intimidation factor by actually focusing on Van Gogh's ear, you know, by kind of pulling out the anecdotal pieces that make the work more, uh, I guess, just more relatable to them. And the problem is, is that can also really go too far in, in the direction away from a kind of historicism or a kind of, um, like I've had conversations with people, with other radio producers actually, who want to do a show about art. Either it's, it's uh, art historians who basically want to you know tape their lectures and they don't understand why that's not really thinking with the audience in mind or not really thinking with storytelling first and foremost in mind. You know, they want to get the, the information out. And then you have, you know, podcast companies who I, I respect quite a bit, who end up really focusing on an angle that feels like the anecdotal stuff that people are going to be interested in. So it's not just a question of uh, Van Gogh. It's, you know, did he kill himself or not? You know, like, let's get into the true crime place. And I find myself kind of alone on an island trying to explain that the storytelling of the work doesn't have to be pure anecdote, that there are stories embedded, you know, in artists bearing witness to their moment and that you don't even need a, a hook, you know, or, or something that's more quote unquote relatable to find something really relatable in the actual story of the art. And it's, it can be really frustrating because I, I feel like, I feel like it's so obvious <laughs> that it's there and I want to be a part of telling that story, but I'm also surprised at how few people think they want to hear it. Yeah. A couple of thoughts. Um, I think that our instinct as human beings is to think about lives, uh, you know, and, and I've written this someplace, but you know, it's, there's an uh, an allergy. There's even a kind of edict against in art history doing biography and biographical criticism. That's seen as very middle brow. Um, but the moment you start talking to people about their own lives, uh, what you get is biography, right? Oh, I got tenure at Barnard, or I was up for tenure at Barnard, but I couldn't get tenure at Barnard. You get a, you get a chronicle of not of uh, abstract ideas, but of abstract ideas intersecting with actual experience. Mm -hmm. So. I think that's how we all understand our own lives to be. It's how I understand my own writing to proceed. And I also think if I can be, let me be a little more pugnacious than that, that you would get a much better idea of Vincent's work from reading Irving Stone's Lust for Life, this horrible, melodramatic, popular novel made into a Kirk Douglas movie, than you would from reading most of the Vincent scholarship from the past 20 years, frankly. You'd get a clearer sense who he was, what his ambitions were, what his appetites were, what his tragedy was. I wrote a long piece that was about this in part. It's fun that we're talking about Vincent so much. It seems it seems right because there was a I, you may remember this. There was a study I forget, it came out of Germany, I think, uh, arguing that uh, that Gauguin had chopped off, sliced off Vincent's ear, that it hadn't mm -hmm. been self mutilation, uh, but had been in the course of a violent, drunken quarrel with Gauguin, which is totally in character <laughs> and, and totally possible. And there were you know complicated arguments for it. The, the you, you could buy it or not buy it. I think I didn't buy it finally. But what was fascinating about it was that it did draw your attention to something that's very profound in Vincent's art. And that is the dream of company, of companionship 
and the perpetual return to loneliness and solitude. And that's was Vincent's life. You know, he wanted in a kind of feverish kind of Woodstock nation way, Gauguin to come down, they would have a commune, an artist commune, <laughs> and they both paint and then they would have dinner and then they would look at each other's pictures and then more artists would come from Paris and it would be, you know, this is, you're too young to remember, but this is the way everybody thought in 1969. Well, knock some shed together in woods in outside Woodstock and everyone will come up with their guitars and will be like music from Big Pink. And this lasted about six months until <laughs> the record companies and drugs ripped it apart and probably your parents too. Oh, my parents, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they lasted for about six months on a yes. kibbutz. Really? So yeah, exactly. That gave me my last name. So the point is, is that that story, true or false, gives you real, quite profound insight into the pathos of Vincent's uh, creation and to mm -hmm. its, the real psychology behind it. Yeah. So I, I'm completely uh, comfortable with that. The fallacy, obviously, is that it's all ear and no Vincent, right? It's all yeah. lurid story and no, I should say, all ear and no night, all ear and no starry night. That's the equally uh, fake. I guess it's a funny thing. You know, I was thinking about this. Term. There, there are simple common truths that we all recognize, but we have a very hard time articulating. And one of them is that kind of tend to be liberal pragmatic truths. And one of them is that we get a lot of insight from uh, direct inference from people's lives into their work, but we shouldn't get too much of it. You know, mm -hmm. I, that, and mm -hmm. th that's a hard thing to make into an ideological principle but it's a, it's a good pragmatic practice. Yeah. You have taken a lot of routes into talking about art uh, in kind of an interdisciplinary way. Uh, you talk about writing poetry and plays, and I don't know if, if you've written songs about art, but you've talked about songwriting too. Um, how have these kinds of different avenues informed your your criticism. Why the different kinds of stories, of, of modes of storytelling to get into the work? It's a great question. I, I don't know that I have a, a great answer to it. I think that um, for one thing, I just have a kind of, uh, what do they call that in meditation? What you're, the last thing you're supposed to have in meditation, monkey mind. You ever heard that expression? <laughs> yeah. When you're meditating, your mind is leaping like a monkey from limb to limb. And I suffer from monkey mind. And at a certain Thank point, you. you you make your peace with monkey mind. You, you make your peace with your inner monkey mm -hmm. and you stop trying to defeat it. So I like to leap from one form and from one manner to another and hope that there's continuity. I have written songs about art. Uh, yeah. It was, I wrote a, a musical set in a museum, which obviously was never produced. I One actually- One of the first songs that I wrote is, is about Solowitz drawing series. It's called right. Grid. I'll, I'll send it to you. That's you. Please send it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, you, I know Taylor Swift had that whole series as well, yeah. didn't she? About, uh, about Carl Andre's uh, ground pieces. It's really? No. Oh God. Okay. No. <laughs> it's a joke. Jesus. How did I miss that? Um, um, go on. I just mean it's, well, cause it, what your tale is, is complimentary to my own. Cause when I was in college at McGill, I did a, a musical student musical about the life of Vladimir Totlin, you know, the great mm -hmm. Russian constructivist architect who made, designed the uh, monument for the third international mm -hmm. would have been the Eiffel tower of communism. Had they'd ever gotten it built. And I, I came to New York with this musical and I was sure that I was, you know, 40 seconds from Broadway, because who wouldn't want a musical about a now forgotten Russian constructivist avant-garde architect? 
Um, <laughs> that never so got that was built. no, never got made. <laughs> Again, it was created a wrong turn in my life. But in any case, I would say that the one thing that having done so many kinds of work, art, I hope, reminds me of is um, to think like a like an actual working artist. You know, as I said before, one risk of academic art historical study, but also of art criticism is to treat artists as though they were pawns in a game of historical or metaphysical chess. Mm -hmm. And to forget that the one thing you have to understand is the constraints, the logic of the situation, the problems the artist was struggling with when she made work of art. And if you miss that, then you miss uh, what's there. So having some knowledge of what that is to make work on commission, to make work from inspiration, it, it, it helps to be an artist to see an artist, yeah. there's a, an aphorism that isn't even worthy of being called an aphorism. It's more like a, a bumper sticker, but I, I like think it. it's true. You have to yeah. be an artist to see an artist. And I think that uh, it is genuinely coming back to our plaints about uh, our history. It is genuinely uh, sort of criminal that uh, our historical students are not compelled to do a course in life drawing and a course mm -hmm. in so and it took me 25 years or so after I was out of graduate school to actually study life drawing for a couple of years hmm. with a wonderfully reactionary master, my friend Jacob Collins, who hates all art after Courbet. In Courbet, he's not so sure about, but he really <laughs> hates all art after Courbet. Um, and I was the world's worst life drawer and I haven't persisted in it. I wish I had, but it was an education in, in really looking and seeing the relationship between eye and hand, which had mm -hmm. governed art for a millennium or more. So I think that knowing those things are is part of it. And also because, you know, I love, I don't know how to put this in a non-obnoxious way, but I care about my writing more than I care about any other thing. And so for me, I wish I could tell you that an opportunity to write about Lucian Freud is my chance to evaporate my ego in the aroma of Freudism. But in fact, it's my chance to write what amounts to a kind of novella in which Lucian Freud functions as a character. Um, that's a terrible admission to make, but I think it's the one that uh, anyone who's writing is their true vocation would make. Did you enjoy the life drawing? Oh, I loved it. I would go, I mean, I was horrible at it. I mean, there's simply no one less talented than I am at doing it. <laughs> But learning it as a, as a sequence of steps, mm -hmm. I wrote about this as a, you know, the thing when you learn finally how to do life drawing, it has very little to do with looking rhapsodically and trembling sensitively and recording the beautiful shimmer of your sensibility on the page. It has to do with learning a set of skills and routines. So my Jacob, my wonderful teacher would say, you know, just look at her face and find out where on the clock her eye is, right? So you just divide your face into a watch style. And then I'm able to see that your left eye, I guess it is, is actually sits higher on your face than your right eye, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, we're, we're so much the prisoners of our symbol sets, as Jacob would say, that we tend to draw, you know, one eye right next to the other eye. But if you begin that work of putting the, the face on a, and superimposing it or superimposing a clock face on the face, you begin to become aware of the asymmetries and irregularities in any actual human face. And just registering, however crudely or schematically, those irregularities 
that's going to be, it's astonishing how rapidly, I'm sure you've had this experience drawing, that human beings, faces, things, positions, bodies, postures leap out at you yeah. through these incredibly simple schematic gestures yeah. that you learn to make and, and exercises that you learn to, uh, you learn to pursue. I, I was going to be a fine arts major. I was going to, to focus on studio art. And I actually, I, I went to University of Toronto. You know, it was kind of, especially for freshmen, it was kind of factory farming. You know, it's like if I couldn't get into a visual arts class right, right. away, you know, you just, you're off the track forever because there's so much competition, not, not talent, just uh, volume. You know, you just, there right. just wasn't enough space. And so I ended up taking an art history course uh, kind of instead <laughs> as I mm -hmm. waited for a spot in a visual studies course to, to open up. And it was really interesting because as I got more into art history and, and found myself finding the art, which I thought, yeah, I was, I, I was just, you know, described myself as an artist. My mom's an artist. I always had, you know, some, some talent in rendering what was in front of me. <clears throat> um, and it was only actually when I started writing about art that I discovered the, the kind of creativity that I realized I actually never really brought to fine art, to the creation of art. And the more I dove into that and I realized that writing and, and you know, observation and articulation, like that piece of writing was so much more exciting to me than trying to make something new with something visual, the more I appreciated that the way that my mom looked at the world as a professional fine artist, her brain, you know, the monkeys in her brain were really different than mine. Mm -hmm. And that I actually was much more like my dad, you know, my, my journalist father who, who always really articulated new ideas in writing. And I, I couldn't make anything new in art. Um, and that was a really interesting experience for me. I, when I was in college, um, I was actually in Steve Martin's uh, Picasso with the La Plana Gilles. I was joking. Oh, really? In the... Yeah, it was a great role, a great well, like yeah. meaty role. And there's a wonderful exchange that I think about actually all the time when I'm really trying to write, you know, when I'm sitting down and, and driving myself crazy, where Picasso talks about, the character of Picasso talks about the simultaneity of thought and line, where you are actually like, that's that flow that you can hit and that, you know, artists struggle with it too. Like, how do you get that moment of simultaneity where your hand is expressing exactly what you're thinking and what you want out in the world? And I want that, you know, every writer wants that and you feel so great when you hit it. But it, it was just an amazing realization to me that I never got there with art, with creating art but I was able to get there or aspire to get there in writing. And so I, I noticed really for the first time kind of the distinction between the two, um, yeah. having given both a good go. Yeah, uh, we all discover at some point exactly where, and I know it's a terrible cliche, and, but it happens to be one of those that is true, where the flow can be found for us. That's not, a, I think, a, a hackneyed, uh, it may be hackneyed, but it's not a false idea that there is a moment exactly as described in Steve's play where thought and act, where mind and material become one. 
And I think we all, it, once you've felt it, you'll chase it because you know that's where your true self resides. And it's a very funny thing because it's partly physical, I always find, you know, that I start off writing at nine in the morning with my coffee and it's a little sticky. And then suddenly it, the, it's like just like riding a bike, right? You know, you're, you're going uphill and suddenly your aerobics kick in and you're, you're moving along. And I think everybody, everybody who has any, any sense of vocation at all has exactly what you described. You know when, you know where the flow is, you know. Yeah. Uh, boy, I'm writing some bumper stickers for this, uh, aren't I? See <laughs> the artist to be the artist, know the flow, but it's true. You got to know the flow. Yeah. I know that the flow is there. I wouldn't say I know how to access it. Um, yes, but you know it's there. You know it's there yeah. rather than somewhere else. Now, it doesn't mean once we know the flow, it doesn't mean other people are going to are going to choose it. You know, that's always, a, uh, you know, a, a harsh but necessary discipline. You know, we can we find our own flow, but other people have to recognize it. You know, I've often said there's a kind of alchemy of I in writing, you know, where you're writing first person essay, first person critique or something. And there is a magical point where the I becomes a you for the reader and the reader you're in Paris having a baby, but the reader is in Paris having a baby, but it often works just the other way. You're working, running along and thinking this will be irresistible. And the readers all say, what? That's so <laughs> weird. You actually would, would do that. You know, I love that feeling of the flow of mm -hmm. being in it. And you're supposed to say, and that's in itself is sufficient that, uh, you know, I love the journey. You don't love the journey. You love, <laughs> you love the destination. And when you miss the destination, when you get to this, it's the wrong destination. I was, you know, headed to <coughs> Baghdad and I got to Babylon, New Jersey. It, it isn't, you don't look back and say, well, I did it for the journey. You don't. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that that transition in, in writing from I to you, and, you know, when my story becomes enough your story that you can really grab onto it and, and internalize it and take so much pleasure from it. Um, it's tough in podcasting, actually, because it's not just words on a page, like it's your voice too. And I think the audiences feel very connected to the voice that they're hearing, especially if, if it becomes their story. But a lot of podcasters don't know that that handoff needs to happen, where it actually becomes very much, you know, I, the podcast, you know, my story, and they don't edit enough, <laughs> you know, and it's like, they, I think that's actually why so many podcasts fail is because they, they forget that they actually are have an audience, not yeah, you know. that they're that they actually are in the business of kind of passing that baton. There's there's a real intimacy with audio um, yeah. that really draws people in, and I, I think that it's the responsibility of the you know self-professed expert, you know, who's giving the art historical information, say in an art history podcast, you know, to just to really do think with the audience in mind and recognize that if this, if this intimacy is created, then there is a responsibility to, to speak to your audience. And, and as you say, you know, make sure that the, that the eye becomes you. Um, and I think that that actually takes us back to the beginning. You know, how do you reach a visitor as a docent? How do you make this stuff accessible? How do you release it from the very kind of tightly held 
academic, you know, the, the, importance of an academic making sure that the history is known and that the facts are known and you know and I don't think it's malicious I think it's actually very you know it comes with a lot of love for the history and for the information and not wanting to get lost and and you know citation needed for everything and that the beauty of letting it enter the space of the audience well you so know that I- they can have their own authentic reaction to it and striking that balance you know, I think the answer is as simple as you make it part of the the broader human experience that they bring yeah. to the pictures. Yeah. And by that, I mean, not just the, you know, high minded human experience of ascetic delectation, but the specific human experiences of sex and jealousy and rivalry and even of cupidity, mm-hmm. of greed. You know, one of the ways I found when I was my kids were growing up and I would take them, we would take them every Saturday to on a museum and gallery tour every Saturday huh every Saturday but that was a real every (laughs) Saturday even they will admit that it was an every Saturday and you know keeping kids interested uh it was you know it can be uh demanding and what I found was the best way to do it was to say to them um if we're in a gallery okay you're curator a like in Dr. Zeus you know you're thing a and thing b at the (laughs) Museum of Modern Art and you have to buy one picture in this Terry Winters show or Cy Twombly show or something for the museum. And only one, but it's got to be the best or mo- either the best or the most representative picture in the show. Here's a million bucks. I said, go ask to see the price list. And here's, I think we, I think we ended up in inflation took control. I think we started <laughs> with it at, you know, 250,000 and go choose which picture we're going to buy and come back and tell me, make the case to me why that's the one. And far from alien, that really turned them on, right? Because then you had a real transaction. Then, then that was a real aesthetic commercial transaction, which was the picture that was worth spending the money on. And God knows, as you and I both know, that's exactly how actual museum curators go into galleries. They don't mm-hmm. go in thinking, which one of these images will suddenly bowl me over? Yeah. They say, <laughs> Where's the smell of the, the orange peel? Yes. They say, I have so many bucks in my pocket. And I need to get a Terry Winters for my collection to make it to because we don't have one. We're lacking a Terry Winter or I need an Eva Hess or I need whatever it might be is what we need. Which one am I going to get? That's how actual curators think. And it focuses your attention beautifully and makes you think of the relationship. It makes you think of well, what is the best picture in here? And also what's the most representative one? What's the one that will tell our visitors oh, we have a good example of that guy's or that woman's stuff. So I, my point is, is that you don't even, you don't want to divorce the work of art in this, in the enterprise of explanation, even from what might seem base or, you know, merely greedy motives, quite the contrary. That's part of the totality of the work of art. You know, there's no idea of work of art since the Renaissance where there's no idea of value in a work of art where some idea of price is not constitutive of it. Vasari records how much artists were paid to paint frescoes along with the kinds of frescoes that they painted. Mm -hmm. That's very much part of our art culture. And I get fed up with people who see it as uh, strenuous or ugly or corrupting in some way. Now, it is true that we live at a moment when the degree to which art has become super luxury goods is disturbing because it removes them from the normal traffic of capitalist commerce into this other weird realm of kind of where anti-gravity mm-hmm. kind of rules. And nonetheless, 
you know, we're not misserved by recognizing the totality of our humanity in as much as it as it's reflected in the in the in the way we think about pictures. This is a way of saying that we when we look at pictures and we share pictures, we talk about pictures, we should be talking about greed and sex, about rivalry, about why Matisse and Picasso resented each other. You know, we do a kind of dumb thing sometimes where we say, well, he was influenced by the cubism and he was influenced by the color. <laughs> no, they both hated each other because yeah. each one recognized that the other one was the only other one who had the real stuff going on. Yeah. Um, so they, they quite despised each other and feared each other and resented each other and imitated each other and, you know, and so on. Bringing the actual human content yeah. of art making into the room uh, is I think the way we, we connect it with the actual experience of the people who are looking at it. Yeah. Well, and, and to that point, you know, if commerce is and always has been a part of art making, I mean, naturally so has audience. Yeah. Um, and I think that that would be a comforting thing to say to a visitor who comes into a museum and feels really Etsy, you know, kind of feels like the work that they're looking at is, is inaccessible. And I think even just knowing that the audience and the viewer has always been a crucial part of the art making, you know, the, the IDU. I, I think that that's really, yeah, that's, I, that's comforting. Yeah. You know, um, art is made in crowds. It's made in, you know, alone, but it exists in crowds. You know, and I always think of, you know, that great moment in, in Vasari where uh, they, the people of Siena parade with Duccio's Maesta through the streets. Cause it's a collective source of collective pride. Now we don't, live in quite that world, nor would we want people to be, you know, parading through the streets with a Jeff Koons, I suppose. But <laughs> not a well, Jeff Koons. You know, that's why when I was writing the book, uh, Stranger's Gate, and trying to document my own uh, trajectory through the art world in those years, I made so much of people like Maxie Shack now, because mm -hmm. they were a worthwhile reminder that art takes place in crowds. Art is a communal enterprise. It's also why I wrote a great length about Soho now vanished when it was still a village of art because that was very much part of the texture of the of the time was going to 420 West Broadway, meeting young artists when they were still, uh, you know, waiting on tables at the Odeon. But it, it almost never happens in isolation. It happens as part of an ongoing uh, community of possibility. Yeah. Mm. You talk in the book about beauty versus pretty. And you say specifically that a good work of art that does not include two forces or drives pulling in starkly opposed directions is never going to live. I, I wonder if you could just kind of expand on that a little bit, this idea of the, the two forces in an artwork that make it live. And, and the living aspect, I think, is, is that charge. It's what we're all drawn to. Um, it's what's so difficult to describe. And yet, you know, that that becomes sure. our life's work. Sure. Talk a little bit more about that. Uh, it's, you know, it's hardly an, an aesthetic idea that's original to me. But like many good aesthetic ideas, it only becomes real to you when you experience it rather than uh, than read about it. But one of the things I've always been struck by, you know, we're talking about what's inadequate about art history and so on, is the urge to the, mo the um, monolithic explanation. That is this picture, this object means this or means that 
or should be understood as a moment in a passage from constructivism into post-constructivism or how, however we posit it. When in fact, exactly what fascinates us, I think, you know, we're coming back to what is it that casts that spell? What is it that offers that aroma? It's invariably uh, the reconciliation of seeming incompatibilities, specifically, because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, you know, if you think about Seurat, the great, you know, George Seurat, you know, it's on my list of 10 pictures, so anybody's is the uh, Sunday at the Grand Jard, and I'm, for a variety of reasons, I've been engaged in a lot of Stephen Sondheim stuff lately. Mm. And of course, his best musical, Sunday in the Park with George, is about, first act of it is about Seurat, which is the great part. Finishing um, the hat. And, yes, exactly. And and Sondheim, in lots of ways, understands Seurat much more profoundly and passionately than most uh, of his critics do or his historical commentators do. But what makes Seurat fascinating, you know, this kind of, you say, people say, well, it's the science of color and, you know, all the little dots, that's what it's really about. And then there, you know, there's a kind of competing school that says, no, it's all about, you know, uh, social tensions in Parisian parks in the 1880s and mm. so on. And then still one more that says, no, it's about the reconquest of the, uh, the ideal world, the ideal Arcadian world, which is summed up in modern dress in that picture. And the truth is, is that it's exactly those incompatible forces that Seurat puts into play. He's fascinated by modern science and he's fascinated by what is in some sense the pseudoscience of complementary colors, all the little dots and all that too. And he's totally committed to his seemingly objective scientific system of form and color making. At the same time, he's a master of mood and he's totally drawn to the idea that somewhere in the noise and necessities of modern life as it was experienced then in Paris at its very uh, apex, there is a vision of communality. There's a vision of a shared space and beauty that we can participate in. So exactly what makes the picture great is that it's both those things. And that Seurat is a divided human being who's got all kinds of contradictory impulses. And they come together miraculously in that picture, not as a riddle that you can solve, but as a series of tensions that you can't resolve. And that's what makes the picture interesting. And, and I think that's generally true about any, uh, any work of art that's of consequence, you know, is, and I get fed up with the kind of thing that says, well, Andy Warhol isn't really a, what's the right word? Isn't really a painter. He's a manufacturer of objects. What makes Andy Warhol interesting is, is that it's true that his subjects are all commodity and commodity fetishism, but he treats them like as though they were uh, medieval icons. Yeah. And I think that our inability as uh, professional commentators to grasp that fundamental truth of art, that it usually has two truths at once, it almost ne necessarily has two truths at once, uh, is disabling in, in so many ways. Finishing the hat how you have to finish the hat How you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Well, Adam, thank you so much for this Delighted to do it. I, I hope we touched some good things and I'd come, I'd be delighted to come back. Thank you so much. Entering the world of the hat Reaching through the world of the hat like a window Back to this one from that Studying a face Stepping back to look at a face 
Leaves a little space in the way, like a window, but to see. It's the only way to see. And when the woman that you want it goes, you can say to yourself, well, I give what I give. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.